This Morning's Person. Now, for this morning's person, we have on the line Ed Cashier, leading photojournalist of our era, works uh, in filmmaking as well, covering social and political issues globally, has uh, been published by Time, New York Times Magazine, The New Yorker, National Geographic, the list goes on, several awards under his belt as well. Thank you so much for being this morning's person. Well, thank you for having me. Great to have you, um, as I said, on the line. And I'd like to start straight up with the photo that won the World Press Photo Award in 2011, Agent Orange. I've just been looking at an image of this. Can you describe for our listeners what's going on here, though? Yeah, well, um, so this image was made while I was in Vietnam um, working on a commission uh, from a a media nonprofit in San Francisco that had been funded by the Ford Foundation to look at the issue of Agent Orange. You know, I grew up with Agent Orange in the 60s and 70s, and, you know, this was 40 years on, and my first thought was, why would we do something on Agent Orange? And then I I realized that probably most Americans, maybe even other people in the world, under the age of 35 would have no idea what it was, Mm. yet people in Vietnam, thousands and thousands of people in Vietnam, and even hundreds of people in the United States were still being born with the um, disabilities associated with dioxin, which is the active ingredient in Agent Orange. So uh, as part of the project, I spent a week with a couple of families, uh, and this picture was made. um, I mean, this was one of those moments as a photographer where you come upon them and you just hope you don't screw up. You know, it's sort of like the light was incredible, uh, end of the day, these beautiful shadows, gorgeous green wall and then this absolutely uh, transcendent young girl even though her face is um somewhat uh, whatever distorted from, yeah. from the, the you know the birth defects of agent orange she was just radiant and beautiful with her little pearl necklace and dress so i think the photo, the photo gods were looking down upon me um, you know kindly at that moment it, it literally looks like a painting it looks like an abstract work of art to be perfectly honest it, it looks like you there's a statement about this girl with her face being stretched is what it looks like on a canvas yeah well you know again these these moments don't happen that often you know and so fortunately uh i was up to the task you know and i captured the moment and uh and thankfully the image was seen you know, around the world through the awards. It was also the UNICEF Photo of the Year that year. So, you know, another very important part of my work is advocacy and raising awareness. And so, you know, that's one of the good things that comes from you know, a wider distribution and dissemination of your of my images. Yeah, and Agent Orange is also um, an issue that has been brought up repeatedly here on the Korean Peninsula uh, as well. I, I know that you're yet to travel to Korea. The demilitarized zone, one of the focuses of the Agent Orange discussion, has also been a, an area of symbolism for, for some time. Are you curious about maybe coming to shed some light if the photo gods shine on you kindly on that sense? <laughs> <laughs> That's right. I think I'll need more than the photo gods for that. But um, oh, I'm I'm so eager to come to Korea. Um, it's interesting when I earlier in my career and in my life, you know, Korea always represented a place that was stable and um, you know relatively wealthy or wealthy. And I tend to not go to places like that. Um, so 
you know, at this point, I would be honored to come to Korea uh, and, you know, the impact that, that Koreans are having yep. through their technology and, and so forth is, you know, it's global at this point. And, and, and still in South Korea, we've got this juxtaposition between the, the, the rich and the poor, the, the rural and urban, which can sometimes be very close together in the same frame. Um, and and, yeah. and uh, a lot of photographers are enjoying that opportunity here at the moment. But but you also have North Korea. Uh, has that ever appealed to you? Well, I mean, you know, what, something I've learned that you know, I, I might have worked in around 90 countries in the world at this point, but the world is a big place, and I've not even covered half of it. So, mm. you know, there's only so much that uh, one human being can do, and obviously North Korea is an incredibly important issue, and... Uh, but, uh, you know, I have not had the opportunity or the chance yet to to work on that issue. You know, I tend to focus on issues I mean, throughout my career and even now on issues that I, uh, or, and projects that I know I can do, you know, and that uh, whether it's because I have the backing or I just have such a deep passion for it that nothing stops me. What, what gave you the, uh, the confidence to go into Nigeria then, a country that uh, has been uh, ravaged by Boko Haram in certain parts? I mean, it's a huge country with a huge population, of course, um, but, but what was it that drove you there? Well, you know, my, my initial exposure to, to Nigeria was through a professor at UC Berkeley, uh, you know, the University of California, Berkeley, and, and he was uh, a British professor, Michael Watts, who was an expert on the Niger Delta and oil, and he brought me over initially to work on a book, and it was one of those commissions that turned into a very, very passionate project for me. As soon as I saw what was going on in the Niger Delta, which is the, the sort of southern Christian half of Nigeria where the oil is, and again, let's remember, Nigeria is one of the tenth largest um, distributors of oil in the world. Um, I, I could not believe the inequity uh, and the poverty, you know, that this place should be wealthy and, you know, hundreds of billions of dollars of oil wealth had been generated over the previous 50 years, and yet, you know, it's a sad tale I've seen way too often around oil, where the people whose land the, the resource comes from have very little. In fact, their lives are worse than 50 years ago because their fisheries and their agricultural grounds are despoiled and, you know, just not the same. And then, you know, the wealth that oil and gas generate is corrupting. It, yes. it takes very, I think it takes a very strong institution, government, individual involved in that in that industry to avoid, especially governments, you know, and so it's a sad tale in Nigeria, that's why the title of my book, Curse of the Black Gold, um, you know, that's why I titled it, uh, because there's been virtually no investment in education, health care, the creation of a manufacturing sector, you know, improvements in infrastructure, you know, the irony that one of the 10th largest producers of energy in the world has you know, most of the time there's no electricity for the people or for industry. So it puts tremendous pressures on the society and on the people, particularly the young men. And I, I feel that, you know, with the rise of Boko Haram and these kinds of extremist groups, you know, these kinds of, if you like, um, places that are, that are stuck in poverty and a lack of development and opportunity, you know, it becomes a fertile ground for extremist yeah. groups. It's really interesting how you bring those together, Islamic extremism on one hand and oil on the other, because people often talk in sweeping terms about how oil drives conflict, but they get a lot more fascinated in the extremism. But through your photos, you can shed light on the other. 
Well, I mean, look at Norway or or Dubai or or uh, you know some of the smaller Gulf, uh, Kuwait, uh, you know, oil producing countries, Bahrain. Uh, you know, they've used their. I'm not talking about their human rights records or whatever, but you know, they've used their oil wealth to create prosperous, mm. pretty stable in the grand scheme of things, pretty stable societies. I know that it is not perfect, and I don't think we have time to parse those details. But the reality is, that Norway is such a great example where they've generated that. They've used that wealth not only to create a wealthy society, but to create a, a sovereign fund that will keep them in business for quite a long time. So that people don't even really associate Norway with that, <laughs> actually. That's which right, is and, you know, to be an artist there, I think you get something like fifty or $70,000 a year. I, it's, yeah. It's, uh, of course, it's also one of the most expensive places on Earth. But, um, you need that grant, then. Um, now, another example of your work is the way in which uh, sometimes stories come to your not necessarily front door, but somewhere closer to you, Hurricane Sandy in 2012. And you uh, were involved in Instagram coverage of that. Can you talk to us a little bit about that process? Yeah, that was such a, a, a beautiful idea. I guess in, in retrospect, an early, um, even though it was only, what, three, four years ago, but an early example of the power of Instagram and the power of photography, quite frankly, but the power of Instagram and social media to, you know, what time did is they flipped the paradigm of the editorial world on its head. So normally you, as a photojournalist or a photographer, you shoot for print and then it would sort of filter out into the digital platforms, you know, blogs and website and so forth and so on. Well, in this case, time said, you know, we're going to send you out for two days to cover this, you know, horrific storm uh, that hit the New York, New Jersey area, and then immediately posted on Instagram. And then what happened a week later is it filtered to print. And uh, Ben Lowy, a, a great photographer based in New York, got the cover. It was the first cover of a magazine uh, with, a, I think, believe, a picture for, that had appeared on Instagram. So it was certainly the first smartphone picture on the cover of Time magazine. Yeah. So that was a, an amazing experience to, you know, be a part of, and, and there was something exhilarating. I'm not a news photographer. I work on long-form, you know, in-depth projects over years, usually, and, and uh, but it was exhilarating to work on a, on a breaking news story where you could really send dispatches in the moment, and then the amazing thing was the feedback. You know, now some of this is, is so common now, we forget that three, four years ago, this was uh, sort of revolutionary. You're right, it's moving on, but I think it also inspires all of us to take part in how the, uh, the world of photojournalism moves with those times. Obviously, time was quite uh, influential. Thank you so much for taking the time to speak with us today. All right, thank you so much and all the best. Yeah, this morning's person, Ed Cashy, leading photojournalist.